This morning we're going to skip ahead a little bit. We finished chapter 4 last week, but I want to move ahead into Luke chapter 5, verse 17. From 17 to 26, we have this wonderful story of Jesus healing a, a paralyzed man. And I'll get into uh, a little bit why I'm skipping over these things, but here is kind of, to me, the next instance where we see the Word portrayed in a very powerful and meaningful way. We will see the power of the Word as the Word declares sin forgiven and a paralyzed man completely healed. We'll see how the Word reveals truth as the Word exposes the inner thoughts of those around him and perceives those for both good and for ill, those of faith and those of questioning. And of course, we'll also see how the Word compels a response and does so very powerfully in this short little story. So we'll be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Let me read that for us with a reminder, as, as always, that this is the very word of the living God. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So ends the reading of God's holy and infallible and errant word as we come before it this morning. Let's join our hearts together once again in prayer. Our God and our Father, as we come before your word again, we ask your blessing. We ask that you would fulfill the promise that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty that instead it accomplishes everything you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. Fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, to open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the things that you have for us this morning. And so make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we would walk according to what it teaches us. Father, again, we ask all of these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, we're skipping ahead in Luke to the middle of chapter 5. 
a story that's also in Matthew and in Mark's Gospels. A well-known story of this paralyzed man on a mat or a bed of some kind who's lifted or dropped down through a roof because the crowd is so great. An incredible demonstration of faith. It's a story that I think I heard every year in Sunday school growing up as a kid. It's one of the more famous, more well-loved stories in the Gospels. So here we are at a point. Jesus has called his first disciples after a miraculous catch of fish during the day, two boats full. Calls them now to be fishers of men. Jesus now has also healed a leper. And here's one of the few times in Luke where we see Jesus healing by touching. And it's significant that he touches a leper because lepers were untouchable. It's a terrible, contagious disease. And so Jesus shows the healing power that he has over leprosy, first by healing the leper completely clean, but also he doesn't catch leprosy. He stays clean. The leper has to go present himself to the priests, but not Jesus. So news about him continues to spread throughout the whole region. And so our passage finds Jesus in one of the cities or towns of the people of Israel, crowds having found him and followed him to listen to his teaching, including Pharisees, including teachers of the law. And it's in this setting that Jesus does this remarkable thing. Not the healing. He forgives the man's sin. Here, Jesus does nothing short of claiming to be God himself. Because only God can forgive sins. Is it blasphemy? Does he have a legitimate claim? And he shows his claim is legitimate by healing the man from paralysis. Again, a wonderful story. It's deservedly popular and beloved. So what I want to do this morning is, is actually quite simple and may not take very much time because it's a great and simple story. I just want to look at some of the details of the story. We'll go through it in a, in a fashion and then talk about some lessons we can learn. I think part of the reason the story is so well-loved is, is that it's, it's such a lively story. There's lively characters, and it's kind of a lively setting with lively interactions. There's lots going on in this short little story. We have Jesus, the central character, the central figure, now well-known. Again, the news has gotten out. It's spread. Crowds coming from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem. We learn from verse 16 before this passage that he had to go withdraw to desolate places to have some privacy, to be able to pray. Crowds are following him. And now he's in a house of some kind, and, and the crowds are packed in. Leading teachers are there. Pharisees are there. Come to hear him and what he has to say. And you can imagine, if you can imagine that setting, the excitement, the energy in that crowd. Imagine if we had this place packed with people. You've probably been in a meeting like that in, in some circumstance where the room is packed. You can't get in. 
it's hot, it's sticky. It doesn't matter how powerful your air conditioning is. You're crowded in. Someone is there to do something, speak or give a, a talk or give a demonstration of some kind. And there's palpable energy in the room. There's excitement in a tight, enclosed space. Then you've got the friends of this paralyzed man who've heard that Jesus can heal. And they want this for their friend who's bedridden. But they can't get in. They cannot get in. What do they do? They climb up on the roof. Their buddy's in a bed. Maybe there are outside stairs, as many of the buildings had back then, but still, they're carrying this guy up onto the roof. Luke says that they let him down through the tiles on the roof. Mark says they had to remove part of the roof to make an opening so he could get down. It had to be disruptive to that crowd inside, dust and debris falling down. It's an amazing scene with this incredible mix of characters. Well, they're doing interesting things as well. The crowd is the crowd. The masses that follow Jesus because of the signs and miracles. They're kind of there in the story more or less to take up space and to provide a reaction at the end of the story. For the first time in Luke, we have the teachers and the Pharisees. This is the arrival of the official teachers of religion. There's a a sense, an unwritten part of the story, but you can see it between the lines, that they're there to, to test out this Jesus. Who is this guy? And they do. When he pronounces the paralyzed man's sins forgiven, they immediately question his action. Verse 21, who is this, they say? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in a sense, that's a natural, logical question for them to ask. It is true that only God can forgive, truly forgive, sins. On the other hand, if they'd been paying attention to the stories that they had heard, they may not have been so quick to judge. If they'd paid attention to the miracles that they had seen and the teaching that they had heard, They ought to have had a clue that this Jesus, he's no ordinary man. There's the paralyzed man. He has no name. He speaks no words. Brought by his friends. He's mostly passive in the story until he's healed. When upon Jesus' command, he immediately gets up, picks up his mat or bed, and carries it home with him glorifying God on the way. Then you've got the man's friends. Think about these friends. What an incredible demonstration of love it is that they brought this man, that they carried him up on the roof, that they dug out a hole, dropped him, lowered him carefully through that hole before Jesus. What an act of love these friends have undertaken. And a determined act. They're going through a lot of work and a lot of effort to make this happen. They are bound and determined to get their friend in front of Jesus. Jesus is there, of course, to teach. We don't get the content of his teaching. 
But we do get a wonderful lesson from the actions that he takes toward the paralyzed man and his friends and in his interaction with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. With the friends and the man, he sees their faith. Their faith. The friends and the man, it says in verse 20. He saw their faith. Jesus in chapter 4 had forbidden demons from telling who he was, but now he's quite willing to demonstrate for anybody who's paying attention, for anybody who's willing to watch and learn and understand, he's quite willing to demonstrate who he is. And the question is whether or not the people around him are going to learn that lesson. Are they going to get it? So rather than immediately heal the man, he forgives his sins. Again, something only God can do. So here's the choice before the whole crowd in that room. Either this man is God, or he's a rank, rotten blasphemer. He's a blaspheming liar. Again, based on his earlier teaching and miracles, the people should have been inclined to see him as God in the flesh. Key lesson for them to learn and for us as well. To pay attention to what God is doing in Jesus and to recognize him for who he is. But, nevertheless, the teachers, the Pharisees, begin to question in their hearts, who is this man? Who does this kind of thing? And Jesus knows their hearts. It's only something God can perceive. Why do you question in your hearts, he says in verse 22? Why do you question? Which is easier going on into verse 23? To to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or to say to them, rise up and walk? See, you can say the former, your sins are forgiven, and nobody knows whether that's true or not. They, They don't, unless you're God. It's easy to say. Is this person from God? Is he God's spokesman? Is he God's prophet? We don't know just on the saying of the words. But say the latter as a command, which is how Jesus says it. It's a command. Get up. Go. And you know immediately whether that person speaks truth or not. Whether there's any power, whether there's any authority behind the words that he says. So to give them a lesson, a clear lesson in who he is, I have the authority to forgive sins, and that's exactly what he says to them. In verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this guy. And he gives him the command, rise up, go home. The lesson he gives them, I'm not any ordinary teacher. I'm not some fly-by-night miracle worker. I am not any ordinary man. I am the Son of Man. I'm the prophesied Son of Man. I am God in the flesh. Then you have the reaction of of, of those there at that scene. The man himself, of course, goes home glorifying God, as well he should. (laughs) 
His sins are forgiven. And if he's been paying attention, he knows his sins are forgiven. And that's a wonderful, incredible, wonderful thing. We know this as from what we saw a few weeks ago in, in, in uh, Psalm 32. How blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. What a blessing that is. He knows this. He's going home glorifying God. But of course, he's also been healed. He can walk. He can carry. He can move. He glorifies God. And then it says about the rest of them, in verse 26, amazement seized them all. I like the word seized there. A word like that is, is not in every translation, and I think it should be because it's there in the original. They were gripped, seized, grabbed by astonishment, bewilderment, amazement. It just took them, seized by amazement. All of them, that includes the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, glorified God and were filled with awe. And they make this remarkable statement. We have seen extraordinary things today. Indeed, they have. Extraordinary things. Some of the other translations we have in English say they have seen strange things or remarkable things. The Greek word behind this, I love it, is the word where we get the word, the English word paradox. We have seen paradoxical things today. This doesn't make sense. This does not fit into the ordinary scheme of life. We are amazed. We are in awe. This is incredible. And they had seen incredible things. They'd seen a man who is God. Paradox. They'd seen a man who, by the mere authoritative speaking of his word, could forgive sins and make a paralyzed man able to pick up his mat and walk. All of the paralysis completely gone. What an amazing story. What an incredible story here that took place early in Jesus' ministry. It's no wonder it's so well loved. Well, just some quick lessons then from it. The first thing that strikes me out of this story is how much more important forgiveness is than material blessing. It just jumps out of this story. The man is brought by his friends to be physically healed. They've heard about Jesus' healing power and his healing miracles. But what does he get first from Jesus? Forgiveness of sins. And that that is more important can be seen in the teacher's and the Pharisee's reaction. No one questions a man who does miracles. Who is this who performs miracles? Dirty, rotten scoundrel. Nobody says that. But a man who forgives? Oh, that's something. Only God can do that. And that leads to a question for us here this morning. Do we have our own priorities straight Are you more concerned about physical and material blessing, about healing, about happiness, about popularity or wealth or or success or status? Or are you more concerned about forgiveness, 
Are you more concerned about pursuing the spiritual blessings that we have in God? Which one motivates you? Which one do you spend most of your time thinking about, laboring over? What do you spend most of your time and treasure on? Forgiveness? The things of God? Or the things of the world? It's so easy to to get our our priorities mixed up. We have so many blessings in this world today. It's easy to get sidetracked. We have tremendous health. We can pray about someone who's going through some medical difficulty. and, And in our day, we have something that people even 100 years ago didn't have incredible medical treatments that people can have that bring them to to health that would astonish and amaze people just a couple generations ago. We have an abundance of food, of clothing, of, of monetary wealth, beautiful homes. It's not that long ago that our ancestors were living in in mud huts. That's kind of a crass way of putting it, but it, when you take a block of dirt out of the ground and stack it like bricks, which a lot of our ancestors did not that long ago. That's how we lived. If you take a bunch of trees and chop them up and stack them together, what what is that compared to what we have today? We have political power. We have economic power. We have scientific progress that's unheard of even just a generation or two ago. Most of you are carrying a phone that has more computing power than the computers that sent men to the moon in 1969. That's mind-boggling. But what are we really pursuing? The things of God? Forgiveness from Him? Only God can forgive. We're called upon to forgive each other. Jesus makes that very clear in the passage that we read for our New Testament reading. But if, if I forgive you, it's, it's just the offense that you've done against me. I can't forgive you for a sin you commit against someone else, and I certainly cannot forgive you for a sin you commit against God. And every sin is ultimately a sin against God. That's what we learned from Psalm 51, David's great psalm. Against you and you only have I sinned. He knows that. We do too. Only God can forgive sin. Is there anything more important in this life. A second corollary lesson to that is, is then how hard are you willing to work? <laughs> Not that you can work for your salvation, but how hard are you willing to work on spiritual things? Look how hard that man's friends worked. They carried him from wherever they came. They carried him up to the roof. They dug out. They dug out an opening large enough to lower him on his bed through the roof. They lowered him carefully. That was a lot of work. Considerable effort. A demonstration of how important it was to them to get their friend in front of Jesus, but also, from Jesus' point of view, a demonstration of their faith. They believed if we can just get him in front of Jesus, he will be healed. 
Is not that true for us as well? Our work is a demonstration of our faith. The work doesn't save us, but it's evidence of that faith. How hard are you willing to work spiritually? Jesus in parables speaks of salvation, the kingdom of God as being like a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. Those who desire it give up everything to obtain it. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Is that how you think about the kingdom of God? The spiritual blessings that are ours in Him? Are you willing to give up everything to obtain it? Is that us? Can people say that about us? Paul goes on later on to say that our pursuit of holiness is not unlike that of an athlete who pursues the prize and who disciplines himself in order to run the race in a way that he might win. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Is that how people would describe us and our pursuit of holiness and righteousness? the things of God? Do we discipline ourselves? Do we train ourselves? Are we determined to run in such a way that we win the race? Are you running to win Christ? Again, too often we treat spiritual things as kind of a sideline, kind of a hobby. Well, I go to church on Sunday, and then we walk out the doors and we forget about that. We go home and do our own thing. But it should be something that we work as hard at or harder than anything we work at elsewhere in our lives. The beauty is is that it can be something we apply in every area of our life. It's not like we have to go, this is where the early church hermits and ascetics got it wrong. It's not that you go up on a pillar somewhere and sit and contemplate reality or go in a cave and deny yourself of food. We serve God and we grow spiritually as we serve and love and care for one another, just like those friends did for the paralyzed man. We can work at our spiritual growth as husband or wife, as a single person, as a parent or child, as a brother or sister, as a friend, as a co-worker, as a neighbor. No part of life is excluded. And so that's the beauty of it. The pursuit of spiritual things can happen in making a meal in helping someone in a simple task, demonstrating the love of Christ to those around us. How hard are we willing to work at those kinds of things? And that leads to uh, a corollary third lesson, I think, demonstrated by those friends. They They weren't working for themselves. They were working for that paralyzed friend. How hard are we willing to work? How concerned are we for the spiritual welfare of those around us? What's our level of concern? How how far are we willing to go for the spiritual welfare of those around us? Teaching others, holding each other accountable. Again, Jesus is talking about those kinds of things in the New Testament reading from today teaching, rebuking, encouraging, supporting, praying for, comforting, celebrating with, all those things where we can come alongside one another and show the love of Christ 
show the unity that we have in Him. To forgive others, yes, when they sin against us. Why? Because we're commanded to. Is there any other reason we need than that? They ask for forgiveness, you give it to them. And then you tell them, seek forgiveness from God, because that's the forgiveness that really matters. We do it because we're commanded to, but also because we've received forgiveness. If you have received forgiveness, your attitude should be like that paralyzed man who goes home glorifying God. What a blessed thing it is to have received the forgiveness of the Lord God Almighty, that He no longer holds our sins against us, that He has removed them, as we heard from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. If God has done that for you, how can you withhold forgiveness from others? That, that's, that's just mean. How deep is our concern for the lost around us, those who are paralyzed, not physically, but paralyzed by unbelief, so weak in their understanding that they cannot even perceive the truths of the Word of God? How far are we willing to go? How many roofs are we willing to break down? How many roofs are we willing to climb to bring them to Jesus? An invitation. Maybe we need to drag them a little bit. Not an asking, but a going. <laughs> I've known people who've done this. You're going with me to church on Sunday. No arguing. How to win friends and <laughs> influence people. <laughs> Sometimes that's what it takes. What are we willing to do for those lost around us? To bring them to Jesus. The Word made flesh. Who in this text shows those around him and shows us that he has the authority to forgive sins. Because he's God. And because of the work that he came to do. We can have forgiveness because God's wrath for our sin has been completely appeased. Satisfied. Because someone else took the penalty and that wrath in our place on that cursed tree 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. What do you do with your sin? Take it to Jesus, trusting and believing in his work for you. And receive the forgiveness that he offers, not because he sees your work, but because he sees your faith. What can your family and friends do with their sin? Same thing. The only solution for anyone is to come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who has the authority to forgive sins. And then in response, be like those in Luke. Do not be afraid to be like those in Luke, seized by amazement at God's gracious work for sinners. His abundant love for sinners. And then glorify God with awe. For you have seen and experienced extraordinary things. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, indeed we have seen extraordinary things. And forgive us if we have been less than enthusiastic in our praise 
less than effusive in our thanks offered up to you. We do get caught up in the day-to-day cares of the world. Do not ever let us forget of the glorious work that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may we be eager to share that good news with those around us. We are not able to do this on our own. We confess it. We admit it freely. We are weak. We are afraid. We're uncertain. Teach us and guide us and lead us to be ambassadors of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might with awe and amazement see and experience these extraordinary, wonderful blessings that are ours from you through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.